0: You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, we're connecting in with Lindy Davies. He's the Program Director at the Henry George Institute. He's based in Maine in America. Lindy, great to have you back on the show. Uh, The world of banking uh, continues to uh, be a primary concern of so many reformers out there. And uh, in the last uh, year or two, one of the most extraordinary statements came out from uh, the Bank of England when they admitted uh, in a a document, rather than banks receiving deposits when households save and then lending them out, bank lending creates deposits. In normal times, the central bank does not fix the amount of money in circulation, nor is central bank money multiplied up into more loans and deposits. So uh, this got a lot of people up in arms, uh, in, in effect, saying, "Look, this is beyond fractional reserve banking. Uh, banks do create money out of thin air." Uh, what's your take on that?
1: Well, I don't know uh, if it's beyond fractional reserve banking. I mean, banks do create money out of thin air, um, and they have been doing so for centuries. Um, this is it. It seems to me that this is just a this is a market based. Um, sort of a sensible process that takes place in in money and banking banks it occurred to banks at one point that well they were probably they could it was a pretty good risk that they weren't going to have their depositors demand all their deposits at any one time and so they could loan out more money than they had on deposit and so they did that and it worked out fairly well for everyone in and of itself because a bank that was prudently managed wouldn't get too far ahead of itself, it would create a reputation for doing good business and being able to make good on its commitments. And it could go ahead and loan out more money than it had on deposit and it wouldn't it wouldn't hurt anything and it would actually make liquidity available in the economy. And so this was a market based phenomenon, so I don't see in and of itself that this that there's anything wrong with this. Now that doesn't That is not to say that there aren't things wrong with the banking system and that that there aren't abuses such as predatory lending, such as um, loans for real estate that create land and credit bubbles, and various other problems that come up in the banking world. But I think we need to make a distinction between the basic nature of banking and some of the abuses that are laid onto it that really do cause problems.
0: So uh, but this is an incredibly valuable capacity to be able to lend money into existence and then to be able to charge interest on it. What a nice business to be in.
1: <laughs> well, it it's yes, but it's a matter of risk, you see. You can't just lend money forever. You can't create create money out of thin air willy-nilly without lending it to good credit risks and without having some prudent management. Otherwise, your bank is not going to be trusted. You're going to overextend yourself, and it's not going to work, right? So there, there are some natural market-based limits to this process of money and banking, but it's like I say, it's something that's gone on for a very long
0: time. My concern, though, is that uh, these days, with the way banking legislation is being set, they've now got this concept of bail-ins. And so is there a need for prudence when banksters are going to be bailed out and now the fact that anyone's deposit... um, If you have money deposited with a bank when there's a financial crash occurring, well, this bail-in clause is... uh, Operated, and that means your your money now be is used as as the bailout money for this bank. So uh, hmm. prudency does it s- survive in in that sort of environment?
1: Well, maybe it doesn't. I mean, there's less need to be prudent if uh, the banks in, if the bank's risk is covered by the government or by the treasury or by the taxpayers. You know, and that that doesn't really make sense. But we have needed to do that. Now, I'm not so familiar with the English system, but in the U.S. system, the first major guarantee for regular depositors out there came after the Great Depression, after huge runs on the banks when deposits were guaranteed up to, I think it was $100,000 first. It was raised recently to 250000 I believe. And the reason for that, I think, was the underlying instability in the banking system that caused such a terrible credit crunch in the Great Depression. Which we almost had recently came very, very close to having in the Great Recession started in 2008. Um, so society felt the need to to cover the risk that banks were taking. That's not a that's not a good market based thing. That's not good business. That's allowing the banks to make lots of risky investments. Now you have to ask why do we need to do that? And it seems to me that it's pretty clear. That the main reason, the main underlying structural reason why that had to be done, was that banks were loaning so much money for people to buy real estate, and the well over two thirds of the loans that are that are of the money that is loaned by banks now is loaned to buy real estate, and so you're creating a self-reinforcing bubble. You're it, you're making more money available to buy land. And this is bidding up the price of land, which is then bidding up the asset value of land, which is used as the collateral for new loans, and you're creating a very, very unstable situation for the banks. And if people are going to, if the majority of loaned money is going to go to buy real estate, then banks are going to need to be bailed out because their their banking system is going to be inherently unstable.
0: Well, recently we had uh, Ed Dodson on the show, and he was talking about how much of a consolidation of borrowing entities there has become uh, in that. you know, the, the vast majority of money was uh, lent out to uh, barely a dozen corporations, I think he was talking about, uh, through his experience at uh, Fannie Mae. So, uh, yeah, whilst uh, a lot of lending is going into real estate as well, then there's a, lot of cor- a number of prime corporations that are taking out a lot of the borrowing. So it is becoming riskier by uh, minimizing those bets and not hedging their bets throughout the economy
1: anymore. Oh, and uh, I I totally agree with that. I think that absolutely makes sense. And that is no part of any kind of sensible or healthy or even market-based banking system. But there has been, I think, an underlying momentum to lead things in that direction by a system that is based on privilege at the bottom. Banks just keep getting bigger. There's no such thing as antitrust when it comes to banking. Banks just keep getting bigger. And uh, it they get too big to fail in that case they they can threaten to drag the whole economy down with them. that's an unhealthy situation for sure the the point i wanted to make just to come back to banking for a second the point I, I wanted to make is that despite these huge abuses that go on which i don't question that those they're bad and that they're corrupt and that they you know create tremendous risk and create tremendous disparity in wealth and all these things um, and the banking system participates in that, no question about it. But where I part company is when people say the basic nature of money in banking is unsound and has to be changed, because I don't think that's true. I think what we're dealing with is abuses that are laid onto a system that has a fundamental imbalance at the base of it, and then creates you know, snowballing problems as it as it builds. But What's the alternative to banks loaning out money? Uh, I'm very suspicious of the notion of government spending money into existence simply because it seems to me that the government can't have enough information to make sensible decisions about what the supply of money is. Um, and that will either lead to inflation or, or, um, or the economy drying up. So what I'd love to see is a sensible banking system. It doesn't even have to have reserves, really. Um, the reserves are there so that the government can have that extra leverage of control over banks, right? It can raise or lower the reserve requirements to affect the money supply. But banks wouldn't have to have required reserves at all, really. They could be relied upon to manage their own risk in a sensible economy. But what would a sensible economy be? a sensible economy would be one in which the rent of land was the basis for public revenue and not the basis for collateralization for loans, which led to all that underlying instability in the bank system.
0: Hmm. So how then would you ensure that these natural advantages, uh, any, any company that was lucky enough to own a banking license, how would you ensure they pay their fair share back to society?
1: I would I think that banks have gotten too big and I think that's a, that's a problem and I would I would approach that in an antitrust sort of framework. Um there's no reason why everybody's local bank where they have their mortgage and they have their checking account and they know the people in the office can't be the way that banking is done. Credit unions could be the way that banking is done. There's no need for giant banks. Just eat up other banks. is that. That is, a, that is a, a symptom, I think, of an economic sim- uh, sickness in society. Uh, now, one of the things that big banks do, one of the ways that big banks make huge amounts of money, is credit cards. Okay, and this is people trying to spend money that they don't have as living standards and wages go down. There's a there's a uh, epidemic of consumer debt today in society. And uh, who's benefiting from that? The big banks, and they're just getting bigger. But I don't see that as a problem with banking so much as a problem of the underlying uh, distribution of wealth in society. Mm. Why do we need to have so much credit card debt? And, you know, you're always going to have predatory lending. If you don't have credit cards, you'll have loan sharks. That's something that's going to happen because people are going to want money now, and they're going to be increasingly desperate to get it as their wages go down.
0: It's a big question. And for me, you know, when I asked that question of you, I was thinking you'd approach it from a, uh, there'd be some sort of a licensing fee or a, uh, a monopoly rent that they'd be charged based on the value of their banking license. But uh, well,
1: to the extent, yes, and that makes sense to me, to the extent that there is a monopoly, then there should be a fee for that, that the society should be compensated. But my sense of things is, and I could be wrong about this, but my sense of thing is that that wouldn't be a large revenue share in a sensible economy in which banks were sensibly sized and were local and lent people money for business rather than for real estate and, you know, performed the functions that banks traditionally performed before things got all out of kilter in recent years. You know, I mean, in recent years, really the last hundred years, I suppose, but but you see what I mean i mean in other words how what what is the element of monopoly that a bank actually has i don't believe that the ability to create money by loaning it is a monopoly because banks compete to do that
0: well here in australia it's quite different to America, where you have a lot of uh regional and city based uh, banking banks we we basically have four large banks and a handful of smaller smaller banks uh, on the side but those big four control about 80% of the market so uh They're hugely powerful here in Australia, and uh, there's not as much competition as we'd like.
1: Well, there's certainly not as much competition as we'd like in the U.S. I don't want you to think I think the situation is good now, because it it certainly isn't. I mean, a huge portion of the consumer debt is held by half a dozen banks.
0: Listeners, we're with Lindy Davies. He's the program director at the Henry George Institute. You can... uh, Find his work and do the actual online course at henrygeorge.org if you want to dig into these concepts uh, we're always talking about here on the beloved 3CR airwaves. And, Lindy, there's been uh, scandal after scandal and talks about a, uh, a royal commission into banking, but uh, we haven't got there yet. And uh, I dare say that even if we did get one, there wouldn't be talk about... Uh, breaking up the banks, or returning our biggest bank, the Commonwealth Bank, uh, to its original nature as a uh, a public bank.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to suggest that these are easy problems to solve. I mean, I think there are, there are deep, possibly fatal economic problems in modern society, you know, and this is a symptom of them.
0: So where do you sit then on usury the ability to charge interest out on this money that's that's essentially being created out of the right to uh, a banking license well well
1: my my thoughts on that have to do with what i was talking about earlier in terms excuse me in terms of predatory lending i mean i think that a certain level of interest is justified because you're making liquidity available now and that's something valuable and the lender is taking the risk to do that and that facilitates, you know, the orderly functioning of the economy and there is a certain mark a certain market or base rate of interest in society that is usually fairly low that I think is a perfectly justified thing. However, as we know, there are lots of higher rates of interest that various borrowers pay in society. Uh, And that's where I think we get into the realm of usury, you know. Um, Why in the world should someone, you know, I need a a blanket for my kid's bed so I go to the store and put down my credit card because I don't have cash and I have to pay 20% interest on that. Now, you know, to me, I call that predatory lending and I call that that is within the realm of usury, you know. But the reason for that is that i didn't have the cash i already spent my wages that week and i needed the blanket so i put down the credit card and the system of course has facilitated that because there are lots of big banks that know they can make money because they know there's enough of a middle class who can afford enough of a long strung out credit card payments for that to be a good business model for them. right Mm -hmm. that seems to me to be definitely within the realm of usury but that's not the same as simply charging interest for loans Because loans form a useful function, and a reasonable rate of interest is an economically justifiable thing, I believe. Now, I I grant you that most of the loans, probably, and most of the interest that's charged in society is not that legitimate rate of interest. It's more within the realm of usury. I mean, we have a system that's, that's pretty screwed up these days. But I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I don't want to say that it is not permissible or just to charge interest to make money available now for someone who wants to use it productively. That's a useful function in society that banks serve. Now, our view of this has gotten clouded by all of the scandals and all the, of the tremendous um, antisocial wealth concentration that's gone on because of big banks but I want to distinguish between the normal useful function of banking and the abuses that have gone on. I think we need to make that distinction.
0: It was recently announced that uh, Australian land values had increased by about 30 times the amount of total banking profits in the country, but it didn't garner one mention outside of this little radio show uh, in the national news stream, that uh, the second greatest increase in Australian land values, five hundred ninety-four billion dollars, had occurred over the last year. Wow,
1: that's amazing.
0: It was incredible. So, uh, yeah, land is uh, around about fourteen to fifteen percent of GDP, and continuing. And, and we to have grow. this
1: ridiculous notion that um, that increasing land value is a sign of economic health.
0: Yes. I mean, that's the point. Uh, It seems like that tenor is slightly changing the news now. They're not applauding every time uh, house prices go up now. There's a bit more of a a nuanced discussion about affordability, but still the policies on offer are are minuscule compared to what's needed to address. What I'm seeing, Lindy, and, and what you might be able to give a perspective on is that in the last decade we have seen a... A paradigm shift in the way real estate is being treated as a asset class now and it's always been a, a tool of uh, the wealthy to buy and sell but now with the increasing commodification of it uh, and the the push towards uh, lowering foreign investor thresholds so that they can buy more and more uh, real estate and, and the increasing corporatization of uh, of the industry as well how do you see it from uh, your perch over there in Maine USA
1: well I think it's, it's tremendously dangerous and people don't understand it it makes me want to bang my head on a wall when I hear people talk about trade agreements and such things as uh, eroding national sovereignty right because, you know, okay, well, maybe we are compromising our ability to enact environmental and safety regulations, and maybe that's a dangerous thing. I'm not denying that. But we're, we've already given away our national sovereignty when we allowed every, uh, private investors, whether they're domestic or foreign, it doesn't really matter, but when we've allowed them to buy up and profit from owning the land of our nation. <laughs> there, that There went our national sovereignty. And... If we're trying to encourage that, if we're trying to encourage foreign investment, uh, but not distinguishing foreign investment in land from foreign investment in capital, then, you know, I think we're on a road to to chaos.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, part of these bilateral trade agreements that are going on is uh, hidden in there is this foreign investor uh, threshold. And most countries now are lobbying on behalf of their wealthiest people. To That's right,
1: and they're also putting in restrictions on things that can actually lower the asset value as part of the agreement sometimes, which is dangerous.
0: Explain that one.
1: Well, some of the trade agreements, and this was, I think it kind of started in NAFTA. It was a big provision of the um, multilateral agreement on investments, but it also was a part of other multilateral trade agreements, the idea of investor protections. In other words, if a country... Uh, enacts a regulation that lowers the value of investments that foreign people have in that country, then they're, they're, that's actionable under the trade agreement. And of course, for Georgia, that's a kind of a red flag because, my goodness, what if a company uh, enacted a, a robust land value tax so much so that it actually lowered land prices? They couldn't do that under the terms of those trade agreements. So mm-hmm. we can see how how fouled up our economic situation has become simply, I think, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but sometimes I think it is this simple because we have forgotten to think about land as a distinctive factor of production. And so we're we're doing things that just are backwards. We're, we're treating increase in land values as though it's an actual increase in productive capital and we're treating foreign investment in land as though it were foreign investment in capital in our country which creates jobs which it, of course it doesn't do so we we get any number of backward crazy economic policies because of this sort of sort of blindness we have to to basic political economy i think
0: so with politics having been sold off to the highest bidder whether you're a bankster or a real estate investor, uh, you've got more influence than anyone who's uh, relying on their ballot box vote. How are we to uh, forge our way ahead? I mean, is supporting, do we, do we need a checklist of things to uh, tick off to ensure that we're doing everything we can to vote with our money? And is one of those things right. uh, looking at public banking and, and uh, investing our savings and, and so forth with them?
1: I wish I had a a definitive answer to that. I mean, I think there are kind of two tracks that we need to go on as as progressive Georgists, let's say. The first is just sort of a progressive agenda that tries to chip away at the control of large corporations and large banks and big money influences on our economy and and our, our political system. We need to just sort of vote the progressive ticket. And try to try to chip away at that, and i I see the military industrial complex as part of that. I see the prison system in the United States as part of that, you know um so I have no illusions about the efficacy of that, but I think we need to try anyway, so that's the one track. The other track is I think that people need to understand as we need to try and get people to understand as best we can, and I know you're doing this with your radio show, you know basic imbalances in our political economic the way our society is formed and i think there's no substitute for that we have to understand what land is and what owning land is about and all of the ramifications that has in every other system in the economy particularly banking now that's not that's not really an action agenda i grant you But I think that's what we need to do because that's where the problem is. People don't understand what the source of these crazy imbalances in our economy is. And I see people that have, oh, okay, the banks have great power. The corporations have great power. They're buying the politicians. Nothing can get done because these people are the enemy. They have all the control. But how do they get the control? How do they consolidate the control? And I think that's a matter of fundamental economic relationships, and we need to understand that.
0: Mm, Lindy Davies, uh, this land question, uh, you know, I've just talked about uh, the profits from land being 30 times greater than banking profits last year here in Australia, but yet. If you're looking to reform the economy, banking reform is always up there and it seems to have uh, uh, no limit to uh, international starlets talking about the vital need for banking reform first. Why is it so much easier for people to hang their hats on the banking reform rather than to grasp the land question?
1: I can think of two reasons for that, and they're both very understandable. One is that we just had a huge banking and credit crisis in the world economy a few years ago, and we're still kind of reeling from that. And we saw that all sorts of crazy banking practices led up to that, all sorts of ridiculous, you know real estate derivatives and, and um, subprime mortgages, and the, you know the list goes on and on. And we feel, you know, we created a new class of villains, the banksters, because of this. And, you know, that's a a pretty easy thing to see and a pretty easy thing to, you know, to get riled up about. But the other is simply that we think of our economy in terms of money. We think of making money. We think of having money. And our tendency is because, you know, making a living is hard and wages tend to be low, and money always tends to be short, we think of our economic job, our position in society, as having a job and getting money, or having a privilege and getting money, right? We're focused on money in the economy, and I think that's a symptom of our being, our wages being low and our always being short of this thing that we need to survive. And so... The source of money seems to us to be tied up somehow in banks. Banks are the people who have money. When you run out of money, you go to the bank and you beg them for a loan so you can get more money. And so this is, you know, this is tied up in our, our way of thinking about the whole economy. I don't think that's how the economy fundamentally works. I think that that's a symptom of wages being low and people being desperate. Because remember, it's not jobs that people really want. What people really want is to enjoy wealth, you know, to enjoy the good things of life. The reason you get paid wages for your job is because they have to pay you money to get you to do it, you know. But everybody thinks that jobs are scarce, and so jobs are the things that politicians are supposed to give to us. And that is a fundamental misconception, I think, we have about the nature of the real economy. Now, if we had a more equal economy, if we had an economy in which there was more equality of opportunity, we wouldn't be so worried about jobs. We would think more in terms of contributions. Yes. We wouldn't be so worried about, um, you know, paying our mortgage. We'd be more concerned with, you know, adding a wing onto our house. and so I think that our constant preoccupation with money and with jobs is a symptom of the underlying injustice in the economy. That's that's how I read that. And I think that it, that's not an easy me- message to get across, but I think it's a fundamental truth about how hard it is to get this message across because everybody looks at it that way. And the reason they do is because, you know, everybody's struggling. It's hard to make it. And... Opportunity is not equal, and most people do not have a fair shake in the economy. Most people are struggling hard to get what that 1% has given to them.